Hello, welcome to Joy of Politics. My name is Kevin White. I'm glad that you're joining us. So for today's episode, I thought we would talk about a couple of things. One is how our market capitalist system, one of the ways that it disincentivizes preparedness for for epidemics and disasters such as we're trying to deal with right now. And the other is a little bit of a quick rebuttal to something a comedian said about history a few weeks ago. So first, about... Um, about preparedness. Now, one of the world's leading Marxist scholars right now is a guy named David Harvey. He's actually a geographer, but he's really better known for his analysis and explanation of of Marxist political philosophy. And, you know, you don't have to go, you don't have to go along with Marx and everything, but a real, um, a substantive systemic understanding of capitalism is impossible without the contributions that Marx made, unless, unless you're going to just remake those contributions, contributions from scratch, which why would you? Marx is, you know, already did all this. And one of the things that David Harvey often notes in his um, talks about Marx is how capital in Marxist analysis is not so much a thing. Like in traditional economics, like a factory is capital. Um, But in in, – David Harvey says that in Marx, um, capital isn't a thing. Capital is a process. Um, Capital is labor and value in motion. And so you have this whole cycle. Um, you know, you start with money, and you you take that money and you go into the market and you use that money to buy labor tools resources, and you use those labor tools and resources to produce goods and services which are sold for a profit. And then you take that profit, you reinvest it, and buy more labor tools resources, which are which is sold for another for more profit, and so on and so forth. So that whole cycle. That's what capital really is. So, like, if you um, if you have a dollar in your pocket, um, that dollar on that dollar is only capital if it's invested um, in Marxist analysis, at least. So, if you spend it on a movie or a candy bar, you know that's not saying that's not a good use of it. But in that case, at least as far as you're concerned, it's not capital. You know, the company is a the companies that get that get your dollar, they'll use it as capital probably. But um, that dollar in your pocket that you use to buy lunch um, or a candy bar or something, that's um, for you. That's not capital unless you're investing it in something. So this, um, so this, so capital is this whole process, is this whole cycle, and this process has a lot of implications, many of which Marx talks about, um, but a couple of the main ones. For one thing, it has implications as far as society is concerned, as far as social relationships goes. Go go. So because you have these different relationships between like employer and employee. Um, and you have relationships between um, between producers and and customers and so on and so forth. So you have all these different social relationships that are implied in this cycle. But another uh, another really important implication of the cycle, which is becoming a lot more important lately, is that capital always has to um, capital always has to expand. 
if you start if everyone's if everyone who's investing is starting with starting with money and ending up with more money that more money has to come from somewhere so you have to have um so and that that that's a whole other can of worms because Marx says that part of that that profit is uh, is basically stolen from the people who um, who actually work to produce it. But one of the other implications is that the um, if you start with money, you end up with more money. If everyone's doing this, um, and if um, then the economy has to perpetually expand. So um, you can only have a capitalist economy if you have perpetual growth, if you have perpetual expansion. And I should mention also that this is not a statement about so much individual people as so much as like what roles people play. For example, um, I, you know, I own a little bit of stock, so I, to a very small extent, play a role, as, um, play the role of a capitalist. You know, it's not the primary role that I play in the economy, um, but um, as long as, you know, we're not concerned. Um, we're not concerned so much with, in this case, with individuals as with what roles people are playing. And this is important because, you know, it's easy to ask, you know, what, what if, a, what if a capitalist just takes their money and, and stops investing and goes and retires? Well, what then? Well, the answer is they're not, then they're not a capitalist anymore. And somebody will, somebody else will probably take their place. So um, we're, we're, we, so in Marxist analysis, we work to understand this as a system rather than just as, as individual workers or individual players. One other key thing to note is that investors' hands are generally forced by the system. Um, there is a lot of greed in the system. It is a big problem. And we can talk more about the causes and effects of that later, which, which we will. We'll get to that. But you could take, um, you could wave a, you could wave a magic wand and make greed disappear from the system entirely. And the system, and it would not fundamentally change how the system functions. You know, it'd be a great thing for the world. It would change society for, probably for the better. But, um, but as long as we have that capitalist system, it, um, greed does not. The absence of greed would not change how this system functions. Um, as an example, you know, if um, if one stock, if one investor is making five percent on all of his investments, and everybody else is making eight percent, that investor is not going to be able to keep their job for very much longer. They will lose their job and be replaced by somebody else who. Um, who can also make eight percent? If a company is growing at six percent, six percent, another one is only growing at three percent. The one that's only growing at three percent um, might be able to keep up for, you know, might be able to stay in business for a little while, but eventually they'll um, fall behind, get crowded out, be bought out, or something like that. And if nothing else, you know, that company that is producing less profit, they um, they will be, they won't get people to invest in them. Um, so this, um, so the system, you know, it, it, it the fundamentals at least, it functions without greed. And I do want to emphasize that, um, 
I do want to emphasize that because we're not talking about individual people's emotions or, or values so much at this point, not that those aren't important, but um, the system will function as it is, um, and this this system will provide the incentives that it does, regardless of what people's, um, regardless, pretty much regardless of what people's motives are, as long as everyone wants to make a profit. As long as people want to make a profit, and you know, if people aren't wanting to make a profit, then you, we're not in a capitalist we're not in a capitalist system anymore. Now, one th thing you'll remember I mentioned earlier is that a dollar bill, a dollar bill in your pocket is not capital. Um, a dollar bill is only capital if it participates in the system in this process of capital. In a similar way. Um, if we're um, stuff that's kept in back stock to prepare for a crisis is also not capital. So um, any ventilators, personal protective equipment, or for other catastrophes, you know, um, extra water bottles, um, fire fire trucks, anything um, anything that is not being used to increase um, increase your in, um, your capital anything that is not being used actively to turn a profit is not capital and because in a capitalist system the economy has to perpetually expand it has to perpetually grow and each individual company is also incentivized to um, produce profit at the maximum possible rate. That means that no company is going to be able to, um, or at least very few companies, um, are going to be able to produce this, um, are going to be able to help us prepare for a crisis. Um, there's this really strong disincentive to do so because resources that are produced to, um, because resources that are spent to prepare for anything that's not happening right this moment are resources that are not producing a profit. And therefore, they put any company that does that at a competitive disadvantage. So capitalism um, produces this systemic disincentive to be able to prepare for a crisis. This isn't to say that any capitalist society or any capitalist country can't prepare for a crisis, but it has to be done by a government or by some other sort of collective or community action. Um, the market can um, the market cannot be relied on to do it because there's a systemic disincentive to do so, and that systemic disincentive will gradually increase um, as long basically for as long as capitalism exists until it's re um, until it's replaced by some other kind of system. The other thing I wanted to sort of talk about um, for this, um, a, a few, a couple of weeks ago, um, the famous comedian John Cleese of Monty Python and Faulty Towers fame, he's a very good comedian. I mean, he's responding to a video that somebody had made on Twitter, I believe. He was, um, somebody had made a video of uh, basically showing all the countries that, um, that the United Kingdom had versus hadn't invaded, and of course there were barely any that the UK hadn't invaded or been at war with at some point. And John Cleese responded with this, Friend, the history of the world is a history of crime. Any nation strong enough oppressed the people around it for as long as they could get away with it. Then somebody else took over. The only nations who ever behaved well were the ones who were too weak to behave badly. So that's what John Cleese said. And I wanted to talk about this because um, there's a few, well, there's a few different 
sort of philosophical issues that one could take with it. Um, one small one, well, not small one, but one th one sort of ice, somewhat isolated thing I wanted to mention, for example, is you know even if you accept that the history of the world is a history of crime, which I don't necessarily, but we'll get there. Um, not all crimes are equal. You know the when, for example, when Alexander the Great invaded Persia, or when the Muslims invaded and conquered Constant, um, Constantinople, and um, in those instances, you know, the uh, it was a calamity, it was a crime, but the people who resided in the con in the conquered countries, um, for the most part, as far as the history shows, could pretty much just go about their business. Other invaders, such as you know the conquistadors, or when the um, or when the Europeans or took back Constantinople, um, they you know they killed much much greater or much much larger numbers of the, of the civilians um, in the conquered in the conquered nations. And so, for one thing, not all crimes are equal, and we can't pretend that they are. I think there's also a bit of a selection bias. You know, a, na a nation that leaves its neighbors alone won't form an empire, um, and therefore you just won't read it about it usually in history books. Um, but that leads to the sort of main point I wanted to talk about with this is that it talks about, you know, history is sort of, um, at least the last couple thousand years of recorded history as a sort of cycle of violence where, you know, nations will attack other where, where nations will attack other other nations and this leads you know nations to try to ex, um, to try to expand and get stronger get bigger in order to protect themselves from attack and what's the most straightforward way to do that well it's to tr attack and try to expand by invading their neighbors and even if a nation can go strong without invading its neighbors um, you know, if if it prepares for an attack by building a huge army, you know it's, um, you know, if you have this giant army just sort of sitting there not doing anything, it's probably going to feel like a waste for the leaders, and if nothing else, it's going to be a, per, a constant temptation to use it. So, um, to so you can see this, I, I think you can see this sort of cycle of violence where nations will, um. Nations will prepare for war by invading other nations, and that incentivizes other nations to also prepare for war. Um, I should say that I don't think that this um, justifies any of these wars, and it doesn't excuse any invasions, it doesn't excuse any war crimes or anything like that. And that's actually what one of the sort of issues I take with this um, sort of sentiment that John Cleese expressed is I think, you know, for one thing, I think it's too fatalistic. But the other thing, it's this sort of attitude where, you know, if everybody is guilty, then nobody is guilty. And I don't think, um, you know, I think we're doing ourselves a, dis a real disservice if we succumb to that. Um, now, there's, I think there's a sort of call. So you have the cycle of violence in terms of, you know, countries trying to build up strength to protect themselves and they have to, you know, and they may have to participate in some violence to, um, in order to do that. I think there's a cultural and economic element as well. You know, if if an if a country invades another country, then it's introducing you know violent uh, you know war as a concept or as sort of a cultural norm, I should say, to that country, or at least or at least I think or at least I think it can. 
and it also it also perpetuates war uh, um probably even probably to a greater extent it perpetuates war as a culture in its um in its own country um one example i've been reading a little bit of the people's history of the world by chris Harmon, and one of the things he um he says is or one of the things that comes up a lot is that you know when nations are at war for an extended period their economies often develop a reliance on war um, for example, um, when the classical Greeks and classical Roman economies grew dependent on um, those economies at certain points in their history, they grew dependent on labor of people who had been enslaved after having been captured in wars. And when um, in these countries, when wars sort of when perpetual wars sort of stopped being feasible, and um, it it sort of instigated this um, shift in how the labor in these countries was done that led to la that led to major upheavals. I think you can also see sort of a um, a similar dynamic at play in in the United States, um, which we won't talk about in depth right now, um, but which is very eloquently expressed in a book called Addicted to War by Joel Andreas. Um, again, none of this is meant to excuse war crimes or atrocities, and um, I think it's not so. Um, it's I think the sentiment that John Cleese expressed is again pernicious, um, both in its fatalism, um, and also in the also in that it implies that you know if if everybody is guilty, therefore no one is, and that. Again, it's fatalist. There's then there's little hope for improvement. Um, I think that not only can we improve, but we have to if we're to survive. Um, but if we are to improve, we can only do so by earnestly engaging with our history and earnestly and honestly engaging with our history. Um, we can't just say, um, you know, everyone is guilty, therefore no one is. We have to look at the crimes that happened, look at the atrocities that happened, and we have to look at the social and political d dynamics at play so that we can. Try Try to sort of break the cycle of violence and build a world um, that has less oppression and more peace. So um, I think that's all we'll talk about for this episode. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you on Sunday.